Good morning, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast with me, James Fleming. This will be our last podcast until September. Sarah, their editor, is going to a Welsh seaside, and I am going to a Scottish moor with my dog and trout rod. The dog, by the way, is called Soapy, after Surtis's immortal character, Soapy Sponge. This being the case, today we have something special for you, which is this. Ian Fleming died in 1964. In 1966, John Pearson's biography came out. In April this year, the Queen Anne Press published Pearson's notes for that book. All the things that couldn't be printed at the time for reasons of sensitivity, libel, and so on. The chapter I will read is the interview with John Hayward, who was Fleming's editor at The Book Collector. We are most grateful to the Queen Anne Press for permission to make this podcast. John Hayward, 22nd of November, 1964. The situation straight from a book Fleming could have written himself. Those ugly flats behind the trees in Cheney Walk on a Sunday afternoon in November. No porter on duty in the hall, the lift not working, and a card hung on the door handle of flat 19. Do not ring. Enter. Second door on the right. And behind the second door on the right, the old cripple sitting in his chromium-plated wheelchair with the curtains pulled back, the lighting lowered, and a red and green sign reflecting across the river from the south bank. Haywood talked with difficulty at first, so that one had to listen as if to a conversation from another room. Then his voice became clearer as he became more interested in what he was saying, and his malice began to revive against the man he was describing. He was certainly fascinated by Fleming as a sort of stupor mundi. It intrigued him to discover how success on such a scale had occurred. He was also bitter about him. A distinct impression that he, and others like him, had been taken for a ride. 1. Book Collecting how the ineffectual publication called the Book Handbook had been started as a means of giving someone, who, something to do at Kemsley House. But it didn't. It was printed on Kay's Press at Great James Street, along with Dropmore Press. One day at Chandos House, Kay said to Ian, What a nuisance the handbook had become. If anyone would offer me a pound for it, I'd take it, he is reputed to have said. Ian is then reputed to have taken out a quid, given him it at the table, and have become, there and then, a magazine proprietor. He changed the name to the book collector and asked me to be editor. I was diffident and asked Philip Gaskill to take the job. When he gave up, I took it on. God knows why, as it's a purely voluntary thing. He was clearly annoyed over the way Ian had treated him and the book collector. None of us came in for 500 quid to do what we liked with. No provision at all was made for the book collector, which had thus gone into the estate, so that life becomes very complicated now. There was also the Queen Anne Press, which Fleming played about with. At first this was printed at the Dropmore Press, later through James Shand. H. had no very high opinion of Fleming's choice of subjects, saw him as a not very effective dilettante, he would ask you out to lunch at White's and then say, Dear boy, we want a few chapters on Kokoschka or Greek mountain monasteries. 
The book collector did well in its way because of the seller's market in rare books, everyone with money investing in them. But it's always been terribly expensive to produce. £900 an issue, print of around 2000 sale of 1400 It was easy to persuade people to advertise, and we circulated it to all the places that might buy books, University of Texas and so forth. But we had no capital, so I told Ian, Ian, you must produce some. So he charged the auditor at the Sunday Times £100 for six editorial lunches and bought 98 shares. John Hayward had one and Percy Muir one. It started in 1952. Had no money. Hayward says he persuaded six rich book collectors to put up £100 each. Also a leading US collector helped for a general fund which has never been touched. A loss for the first six years, then made a marginal profit. It was the year before last that Ian took £40 from the earnings. I was very cross about this. He said, dear boy, please don't deny me my small earnings. All the same, I felt that he was slightly ashamed, as much as he ever was. 2. His character and collecting. A. His meanness. B. His laziness. He never did a stroke for it, except to get an ad from a friend who was a director of W.H. Smith. I was always asking him to contribute about his own collection, but he never got round to it. Mind you, he was always a great delegator. Perhaps he learned that when he was sending all those people to their deaths in the Secret Service. C. I think it used to please his vanity to own a magazine of his own. He was always a very vain man. He really enjoyed having foreign manager on his door at the Sunday Times, although he was never really any such thing. 3. The Library of Ideas Shown at IPEX Exhibition The International Printing Machinery and Allied Trades Exhibition of the 22nd to the 27th of July 1963 contained a section catalogued as Printing and the Mind of Man to which Fleming was a major contributor. Ask Muir for all the details also where he got the idea from. But before the war, while a rich young man, he started this collection of what he called books that started something, books that have really changed the world. In a way, it is a bizarre expression of several of his peculiar and one would have thought contradictory qualities. He had a great and genuine love of first editions. He also loved money and things he thought would acquire money, make money. Then there was the excitement of the chase, hunting them down. There was the special knowledge thing. And finally, power. The love of power. Books as power. Power you could handle. I remember the first time I was invited to the flat with Annie and saw all those cardboard boxes of his lining the shelves. Some were green, some were brown, terribly uninteresting looking to anyone who enjoys books for aesthetic reasons. But you see, they were power. Ammunition is stored in precisely such boxes. The books themselves sound a rum lot, but reflect his particular ingenuity that made him such an excellent journalist. A sort of eye to the main chance, practicality, call it what you like. A canniness of where power, money, influence really lay. Scouting for boys, Koch on syphilis, Pasteur, Fleming on penicillin, the wasteland on the origin of species. Please don't call it the origin of species, so many people do. I shouldn't think he paid over much for them. 4. 
I must find out how much he really knew about ideas, history, etc. This is one of the oddities about the man. One has no real idea how much knowledge he had, how much it was all a highly polished facade. I asked if he had Vico. Uh, yes, I think you'll find he had. But again, the whole point of a library on power is that it can depend entirely on the information others give you. 5. I think he was always slightly ashamed of all this collecting thing as something not entirely manly. He compensated accordingly by skin-diving, bridge and excessive amounts of golf. 6. There was an enormous concentration on bodily health. In the days just after the war, when he gave rather splendid Sunday Times lunches at Frascati's, among the Palmer violets and the patchouli, and with Edward VII's monogrammed French letters under the seats, he would always go to elaborate lengths not to have to help me with my wheelchair. He detested illness in others, would never visit people in hospital if he could help it, and it was this, of course, that made his own illness so degrading for him. He was, by all accounts, a most difficult patient to cope with. 7. Quinnell told Hayward that he had been at Victoria Square one evening and after dinner a nurse came in with a pill he had to take. He was very beastly to her and then afterwards poured himself a treble whiskey, the act of a very bored, very desperate man. He was given up to despair. The lawsuit took a great deal out of him. This was an action launched in 1961 by film producer Kevin McClory and with screenwriter Jack Whittington claiming co-authorship rights in Thunderball. He was a victim of the fear that the flash was out of the pan. And I believe that during the last three years of his life he had no taste for anything. He rang me ten days before his death. Strange, for I had not spoken to him for a long time until then. I had never known him so apologetic. He was apologising for not turning up to the AGM of the book collector, which incidentally Hayward had called and then attended on his own. Everything this last year has been so damned difficult. A bloody great film nonsense. I'm just not up to it. I feel quite wretched. An awful year, dear boy. Hayward rather laboured the point. I thought there was an enormous and rather satisfying nemesis about the poor devil's situation. You see, he was being killed by this demon within him. He was totally in the clutches of his success. Edgar Wallace seems to have had the same thing towards the end, terrified that he could not live up to the part that he had created for himself. I'm told that the Russians were very impressed by what he wrote about Smirsch. 10. Then Hayward went on to talk about Fleming's past. The very good-looking, very typical, not terribly successful, old Etonian city gent whom he met through Capes, and Peter Fleming, his brother, in those days the golden boy of Cape. Even later, when he had joined Reuters, Ian still seemed rather a dim, journalistic figure, terribly good-looking, of course, and had a great reputation as a ravisher of virgins in taxis. But he still wore his O.E. tie in those days, hadn't learnt to wear his bow tie and Dunhill holder. 11. I remember how surprised I was when I was invited to Warwick House for dinner with the Rothermeres and arrived at that really quite remarkable house to find that the guest list included Noel Coward, the Governor-General of Northern Ireland, and Ian Fleming. And I was even more surprised when I realised that Annie was obviously very fond of him. Surprised because she had always been something of a gilded blue stocking. 
She loved intellectuals and having them round her. People like Freddie Ashton, Osbert Sitwell, Peter Quenell. And Ian so patently didn't fit in among them. 12. Hayward watched the affair from the very beginning. Fleming had a flat above his in Cheney Walk, and he saw Annie, very rumpled, leaving in the early mornings. I think it was simply one of those things that they simply had to have each other very badly. And probably Fleming was flattered by the intellectual thing. And probably he thought that at 43 it was time to give up the pursuit of virginities in the backs of taxis. Certainly, after they were married, it was most strange to see Ian at the head of the table. Good-looking Ian, among all those intellectual friends of his wife's, and not a word to say to any of them. 13. Annie continued to be a great lion hunter. I remember the cook at Victoria Square telling me one day that during that year they had already had 180 luncheon parties and 210 dinners. At these dinners, Ian would sit, amiable, smiling, but very bored. Occasionally, he would offer his cigarette case. Some years ago, I arranged a dinner for Morm, whom he had always expressed such admiration for, and who was such an admirer of his wife. But Ian really had nothing at all to say to him. 14. Look up the article in town by Nick Tomellin, describing how all her guests, late at night, would look up as Fleming passed through the house on his way to bed and say, Oh, that's only the commander. 15. Hayward supports this. They really all despised him. And when he became such a success, it only made it worse. And, of course, he really did want their admiration. That's what made it so sad. He was so pleased about being parodied by Connolly in the London magazine. At least he was being taken notice of. 16. In the early days, Fleming was a great Deb killer. He had a carnal reputation as a ruthless layer of Debs, not actresses or expensive whores. Perhaps he just found Debs cheaper. Peter at this time had just married Celia Johnson, and his brother Richard had gone into Fleming's bank. He was rather out of things. 17. I was most surprised when I heard about his book, Casino Royale, and even more surprised at how good it was after a style. Of course, it didn't do awfully well, 3,000 or something, although it did get some notice taken of it for its sadism. I had no idea then, of course, that this was a new myth being formed. But you see, there was undoubtedly something there. Most of Annie's friends just shook their heads and said, I always said there was something odd about the man. 18. Hayward always read Ian's books as a matter of habit. I used to enrage him by correcting his English. I have several inscribed copies acknowledging this in a wry sort of way. I used to say, Ian, on page 10... You should know better than to use like with a comparative. You don't say, like I did when I was young. You say, as I did when I was young. I also started the business of picking him up on minor details, such as the braking system on the Vienna Orient, and the fact that Bond couldn't have had a half of Krug 49, because there were no half bottles that year. 19. He would never have dreamed of showing me his books before publication. He was very jealous of that sort of being got at. But afterwards, he would take great care to have corrections put into the second editions. 20. Language-wise, he was very you, very well-bred in a snobby way. 
He would not talk about phones and mantelpieces unless Nancy Mitford was a guest and he specially wanted to annoy her. 21. He loved brass pictures because they needed such a lot of polishing. 22. Come to think of it, he really was a somewhat unreal person. You never heard him mentioning a painting he really liked, never spoke of going to the festival hall to hear a particular symphony he was fond of. I often wonder whether he had any real likes and dislikes at all. 23. The terrible thing that happened to him at the end was that he had all his life been an extrovert, games-playing, healthy chap. Now, suddenly, after the first heart attack, he was forced to look at himself and was not particularly pleased with what he saw. So he just lost interest. 24. Why was he so impressed by Harling? Because he represented so much what he would have liked to have been himself. 25. He never gave Hayward a present. 26. Latterly, I couldn't get him to take any interest in anything to do with the magazine. It seems one of the most awful stories of somebody burning himself out. The one thing I think he did enjoy was the filming. But otherwise there were endless squabbles over money. The McClory business took a lot out of him. He resigned from White's because he simply got bored of going there. 27. And the ultimate sadness was that the literary establishment he so wanted to impress took so little notice of him. It's rather like Hugh Walpole, who so wanted the same thing, or even old Arnold Bennett at the Savoy Hotel. But then, perhaps it wasn't so bad. There was always the consolation of a fast drive in his car, or another round of bridge. That was an extract from John Pearson's book called The Notes the interviews that lay behind his biography of Ian Fleming. It's the last podcast for a month, while we disperse to beach or banyo as it might be. Our next one will go out on September the 2nd, God willing, and if you want an inkling of the subject, you must imagine yourself reading the London Times in the early 1950s, in the days when births, deaths and small ads were on the front page. In the meantime... From all of us here at The Book Collector, holiday well.